Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. again, fellow children of the night. Look at you. Survivors of another week. You survived this week's rain, mud, and mug of Chicago's spring. You slogged all the way over here for another evening of tales to terrify. And you knew to ring the bell that has Lawrence Santoro written below it. Oh, not questions. You obviously have survived the horrors of spring to date, and you've obviously been coached about whose bell to ring— you must know what to do next. Yes, yes, you settle in, you get comfortable, grab something cool or warm, as is your wont, snuggle up with a loved one, and... Oh, this is not going to be a regular thing, movie reviews. I'm lousy at them. I'm a cinematic gourmand, not a gourmet. Except for movies I hate... I love everything and consume movies to the bursting of belly and the flaking of eye. On the flip side of that overly modest assessment of my critical faculties, I do have some taste. I hope, for example, you all ran out and rented or found a friend who already owned The Whisper in Darkness from Sean Branny and the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. That's the film I talked about last week. But, but, this week, this week, all unexpected, I came upon a film... I never heard of. It came and went theatrically, I guess, and just came out on DVD and Blu-ray, and now it's mine. It is low-budget, but truly well-conceived, well-written, well-directed, well-acted, well-lit, well-photographed, well-edited, so you do not, absolutely do not notice how little money it costs to make it. As good a film as the producers made, though, it apparently was marketed with no skill or cunning, whatever. 
That's the downside of low-budget filmmaking, I guess. Or maybe I was just busy and missed the whole thing. The Innkeepers, it's called. Uh, this is an old-fashioned ghost story. It's set in a century-old New England hotel. What better than that? The Yankee Peddler. The Yankee Peddler is about to be turned into a parking lot, and the titular characters of the piece are Claire and Luke. Claire is 20-something, bright, sweet, goofy, nerdy, sexy, with no idea of where she's going or what she wants in life. Luke is 30-something, bright, nerdy, a college dropout who spends his time building his ghost hunter website and pouring out through the night's duty at the desk. The two of them are running the hotel for the owner, who will return from the Barbados in time to leave the hotel to the wrecking ball. So Claire and Luke are both amateur ghost hunters. They're determined to capture the peddler's resident ghost on tape before the place is torn down. Well, writer, director, editor Ty West builds this show slowly. He lets us get to know Claire and Luke before he throws them to the cauldron. Some might argue that he takes too much time with his setup. I do not. First, I love setup. Second, I love the setup here. I love spending time with these two people, watching them reveal themselves without having someone tell us about them. They're funny, human. They feel real. I love watching them interact with the Yankee peddler's last few guests, a woman and her son staying at the hotel because the woman wants to teach her husband a lesson in loss, and there's a former TV star, now a psychic healer, she's in town to speak at a convention, and a latecomer is an elderly man who had spent his honeymoon in the peddler a half century or more ago. At all events, the last few nights of the Yankee peddler obviously do not go well, or else there wouldn't be a movie. The things that do go bump in the night reveal themselves, and Ty West's camera is there to catch it all finally. This is not, by the way, one of those found footage films that are all the rage now. This is a well-crafted, serious piece of horror-making that harkens back to an elder, classier, spookier era. Back to things like The Haunting, for example, uh, where mood, timing, lighting, and acting take the place of torture porn and shock stings. Although, about shock stings, to his credit, West doesn't steer away from those stings, those moments of tension-building silence that give way to a now-expected-but-always-delayed moment of sound and visual fury. He uses the technique early in the film, and then he deconstructs it and reinvents the film with layers and layers of it. The acting, it's excellent. I don't know any of the actors, but Kelly McGillis, who plays the actor psychic, who knows more than our hunters of what lurks in the basement of the Yankee peddler. You, no doubt, do know Sarah Paxton, who plays Claire. You probably also know Pat Healy, who plays Luke. They've each done lots of work that I don't know. Mostly television one-off guest shots and shows I don't watch. Small parts in movies and maybe smaller parts in larger films. But they're both excellent here. They're craftsmen who give Claire and Luke a life that goes beyond the page and makes us like these people all the more because we have spent some quiet time with them. Oh, yes, finally. This is a very human, 
yet a very scary film that will leave you wishing for more and it'll tweak your need to talk about it afterwards. I heartily recommend The Innkeepers, now out on Blu-ray and DVD. Poetry this week is by Corinne de Winter. Corinne is the author of the Bram Stoker Award-winning The Women at the Funeral and five other Stoker-nominated collections, including Virgin of the Apocalypse, which, by the way, was illustrated by Stoker-nominated poet Marge Simon, who was heard here earlier in the nook. Corinne was twice nominated for the Pushcart Prize. She also won the Risling Award and has gathered awards from the New York Quarterly and Triton College of Arts and Science. Her fiction collection, Valentine's for the Dead, will be published in June of 2012 by Shadowfall Publications. Here is her poem. Of Wings Pale Summer Morning I have woken to a dull ache in my lower back where wings are emerging. The breakthrough has scythe-shaped bloodstains on the sheet. Barely spanning six inches, the buds are seafoam green, damp with growth and progress. Yet nothing else has changed. My eyes are still traveled with crow's feet. My breasts, torso, hips remain human and awkward. But now I smile. At last, something in common with Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel even Hecate, though mad, were the implements of flight well. By nightfall, a full set of wings adorn me. For all their beauty and charm, they are clumsy, impossible not to crush in the daily mess of humanity. I might have wished for them in a dream, wrestled with a handsome angel to win them, but with the inheritance... I have lost the feel of home. They pulse like a curse and create an alien world where, like loving, I must learn to fly in a world ruled by gravity. William Peter Blatty, author of The Exorcist, has called Corinne's writing like a beautiful dream. For more, stop by her website, corinnedewinter.com. That's C-O-R-R-I-N-E-D-E-W-I-N-T-E-R, all one word, dot com. Corinne's graphic novel about the fantastic last days of Jim Morrison, illustrated by Glenn Shadbourne, will be released in October 2012. A novella, The End of Desire, is available now on Amazon, and her readings and movie involvement can be seen on the YouTube channel. And thank you for letting us read that. And again, thank you to Celia for your reading of it. To Celia, by the way, can currently be heard reading Will McIntosh's story, Incompatible, on our Big Brother show, The Starship Sofa. Stop by and take a listen. And it is that time of the month again. We can settle in, slip into our wellies, and have another walking tour of the abattoir under the capable guidance of Mike Allen and his fellow explorer, Shalen Hurlbert. Mike, Shalen, 
Hello, Tales to Terrify listeners. I'm Mike Allen, and I'm here to welcome you to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. Now, as I mentioned last time, I'm under a number of writing deadlines. That still hasn't changed as I record this, so I'm not going to be able to go into a lot of detail doing book reviews. I hope to be able to return to that next month. We shall see. A writer's life can be fairly unpredictable. I can tell you a few things about what is going on in the horror world right now. The talk of the town, so to speak, or perhaps the talk of the whole world, not just the horror world, appears to be the cabin in the woods. All sorts of good things being said about this movie that supposedly takes the standard genre trope of the teenagers heading out to the lonely cabin to be picked off by psychos or supernatural forces or what have you and turns it all completely on its head as it stands today. Rotten Tomatoes shows a rating of 91%. That's got to be an all-time high for a horror movie, especially a recent horror movie. And a Metacritic showing a 72. Again, interesting. Of course, there are some who might think that the critics liking it so much must mean that it's not actually all that good or scary. We shall see. Maybe this is a film that Shallon and I could talk about down the road, but I'm afraid we're not ready to today. Thank God Tony doesn't require me to be timely. I can tell you that the upcoming event that I am looking forward to that will have transpired between... Now, in my next column, is the release of Laird Barron's first novel, The Croning. If you're not familiar with Laird Barron's work and you're a horror fan, you absolutely should be. His collections, The Imago Sequence and Occultation, are absolutely essential reading if you want to know what is cutting edge in horror now. In the last installment, I introduced you to my friend, here in Roanoke, Virginia, and fellow horror aficionado, Shallon Hurlbert, and we had an interesting talk about a little-known J-horror film called Marabito. And what I, in fact, have for you today is another exchange between myself and my buddy Shallon about horror and horror films. We're going to talk about an obscure jewel that you should seek out if you like the really, really weird it's called Alice, and it's a 1988 film directed by Czech animator John Shevankmeyer. One of the creepiest experiences you could ever have watching a children's movie or perhaps watching any movie. We're also going to talk about the film career of Clive Barker, focusing mainly on one of the more recent and less successful offerings, an original sci-fi movie called Saint Sinner. But in acknowledgement of Clive Barker's importance and contributions to the genre, that's not what we limit ourselves to. I hope that you enjoy getting to listen in on our rambles. Here we go. Hello, folks. We are once again bringing you another live quote-unquote segment of Tour of the Abattoir. I am here with my buddy Shallon Hurlbert. Say hi, Shallon. Hi, Shallon. <laughs> And we have watched two movies that we intend to talk about uh, for a little while. One is a wonderful film that I am certain none of you have seen <laughs> that uh, comes from Poland. And another is a... Mess. Yes. An another is a mess that we watched because we were hoping 
that it would be something good from Clive Barker, as his name is all over it. Uh, alas, it wasn't quite, but it's still going to be a lot of fun it, to talk it about It was anyway. kind of a telling thing when I looked it up on IMDb and saw the sci-fi original movie written Yeah, right. yeah, that, maybe we should have known that beforehand. It's right up there with the quality of Ice Spiders. <laughs> no, I haven't seen Ice Spiders, but it no. sounds bad. Just It's the terrible. All right. Although Sharktopus was definitely a little genius piece of cinema, I've got to say. I have seen the little GIF clips that have been made from Sharktopus, but I haven't actually seen them. I didn't realize it was a real movie. It is, and it's it's just as good as you would imagine. Sharktopus I, I can imagine. Well, let, let's start in the order that we saw this. And Shallon, would you mind telling the Tales to Terrify listeners what it was we watched first? We watched uh, Alice by Jan Svankmeyer, who uh, was one of the people who did work on the early Tool videos, as well as the Brothers Quay. He's done a lot of really interesting stop-motion animation work that has gotten a lot of recognition in art circles and art film circles. Do you remember when that film was made? I don't. Um, I want to say 88, but I could be wrong. No, that sounds right. I think we looked it up, but we didn't remember it before right. we started this podcast. I'm going to attempt to describe the film. Shallon has seen it before, and he's the one who recommended it to me. His ability to find films like that is part of why I wanted to do this sort of thing with him, because he knows how to find these obscure pieces of gold. And this is definitely one of those. Uh, this is a film that combines live action and stop-motion animation it is an adaptation of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but it's not like anything that you have ever seen, I'm sure, at least if you're familiar with the American versions, or even the original British illustrations. This version of Alice takes place even in the live-action segments in this strange sort of nightmarish space where this little girl seems to live by herself with an incredible cluster of skulls and taxidermied animals and other potentially dangerous objects. Although I believe we see her older sister in the very, very beginning, perhaps. The reality of this place is not entirely Just her, clear. Just her lap and hand, and that's the only other human person you see in the whole movie. Everything else is either animated taxidermized animals or objects. Uh... And the animated taxidermized animals are, are fascinating. If you're somebody who is easily prone to nightmares and you would like to get some more, I would suggest that you sit down with this film and, right. and watch some of these sequences. The actress who we see as the sister in the beginning is in the same pose as a doll we see a little bit later on who's holding the same book. I can't help but wonder if Either Alice is dreaming or at that point, or the sister was imaginary to begin with. This is one of those right. movies where it's just hard to pin down what the reality is. Shallon, how did you find that film in the first place? Well, like I said, he was involved in the making of early Tool videos. And Tool is still one of my favorite bands. And the videos especially were really bizarre, stop-motion, claustrophobic, dark, horrible, you know, in, in the best sense that, of the word. That horrible. definitely describes this movie. Right. And so I started looking up his and the, the Brothers Quay's, like, own stuff. And 
Alice was the first one I, I ran across. And if, if you end up watching Alice and liking it, I definitely suggest you find Jan Svenkmeyer's Faust. It's a little bit more linear film, and it definitely has more of a plot, but it's also incredibly bizarre and has a little bit more adult, dark aspects. Well, this was certainly bizarre. I would not call it a film for children, precisely, Although, something that was very fascinating to me as someone who has read those books over and over and over again, Alice's Adventures. I as well. Yeah, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, was how closely it followed the plot, such as there is, of Alice in Wonderland, in that almost all of the major scenes get represented in some way, although it's... Not Certainly not the way Lewis Carroll originally imagined it, but there's a part of me that kind of thinks that Svenkmeyer's nightmare vision refracting the original story is in a way maybe closer to the spirit of those books than, say, well, certainly, say, the Disney adaptations. Right, and when you think about Lewis Carroll as a writer and as a thinker, he really was interested in mind-expanding drugs, uh, hallucinogens, psychotropics, and so part of what... A lot of that going on. Right, right. Part of what he wrote about his drug use and and, uh, experimentation is reflected in his writing, and most of the film adaptations I've seen take it on the more, like, playful, joyful, childlike way, and this is really more like a laudanum-fueled nightmare. I'm going to try to describe one of the scenes. There is a sequence in which Alice comes into a room in which socks burrow through the floor like worms from the Dune books, and eventually one of the socks digs into a drawer and finds... In the ever-present little desk that's in most of the major Yeah, there's definitely a desk motif in this movie. The sock finds a pair of dentures and a glass eye, absorbs them, and they become part of the sock, and it becomes able to talk, and then it curls up on this mushroom-shaped object and becomes the caterpillar from the from the book, or a very twisted version of, right. of it. And it's just, the entire movie's like this, and it was just awesome to watch. Yeah, it, it's a really incredible movie, very atmospheric. I don't know that it's horror as most people would define it, but it's pretty horror. I would say in, there's a way in which it's much better than the standard horror a lot of horror films just kind of go by the numbers and right this, jump this, scares and creature effects and you really kind of feel you're in a different kind of scary place watching this film. right there are some very disturbing images that stick with you a lot longer than say your average haunted house movie or something like that the fake eyes that they use in the taxidermy animals that bulge out, the weird skull and skeletal sculptures that represent some of the characters. It really, really evokes the kind of discomforted fear that you get in a dream state. It's the stuff of nightmares, but in a wonderful way. Unfortunately, the same thing cannot be said about the other film that we watched. <laughs> uh, uh, this was this was Saint Sinner. 
It was produced by Clyde Barker, and I think written... Clyde Barker Presents, I believe, is... Right, something why, like that. Why would he want his name as... Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there have been some pretty crappy movies made from his works. Rawhead Rex is the one that I know specifically he absolutely hated and drove him to produce and direct Hellraiser by himself so that he would get a more accurate movie version of his stories put on film. But oh. this, this is a whole special kind of suck that is reserved for movies made by the sci-fi movie house and forgive me if any of you are big fans of them but i can't imagine why now there is a way in which this movie is fun although these two movies have nothing to do with each other i can't help but be reminded slightly of the last movie we talked about marabito in which we had the young woman vampire constantly sucking from the baby bottles right. full of blood Right. In in this movie, we have a pair of vaguely incestuous, vaguely lesbian, constantly slime-covered succubi who behave in almost a parody of Clive Barker's trademark... Over-sexualized I, yeah, tr- monstrosities. Sort of twisted take on sexuality. No, see... If you look at the Cenobites in Hellraiser, there's something very sensual about them in their behavior, the way that they speak and move, even though their appearance is completely disgusting. There's still that underlying sense of sexual threat. The Cenobites are very reserved. I believe right. when Barker was originally directing Hellraiser, he, he constantly told the fellow who played Pinhead, you know, less is more. Less right. is more. This uh, movie certainly could have used a bit more of less is more. Yeah. And <laughs> the reason I brought them up is because it's obviously an attempt to take something distasteful and sexualize it like one of the disturbing elements of Clyde Barker's writings and films. But all it did was just make two really greasy-looking, diseased-looking women even less appealing than, right. you know... The actresses at least appeared to be having fun in the role. Right. I, it looked like everybody in the movie was having fun with it, just not taking the job too seriously, I don't think. We we should attempt to explain what it's about. Do you want yeah, to do that? Yeah. Or... Okay. There's a monk in 1815 in the Americas, and he and his brother are uh, members of an abbey that sits on top of a reliquary full of horrible, evil relics and devices that they've collected to keep away from humanity. And the main character is mischievous, and he wants to see all these things, and he convinces his brother to go downstairs. They find one of the objects, which is like a marble ball carved with women on it. Always a dangerous sign. Right. And it sucks the brother's arm off, and two hideously slimy women come out. And and by that, he means the arm is severed. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But it is sucked into the ball. Yes. Yeah. Um, And then they use this weird thing called the Wheel of Time to go into modern day. Not the Robert Jordan series, just to be clear. Right. (laughs) Although we were were cracking jokes about that throughout the whole movie. Right, right. It made it feel almost as long as the entire series. Definitely. But um, anyway, he follows the succubi into the modern day through this Wheel of Time. And with this special dagger that can only be wielded by a saint, he has to go hunt him down and, and kill him. And meanwhile, they go on a killing spree killing men by sucking out their juice through a 
umbilical cord looking thing that they pull out of their neck. It's really unclear. It was very. It was. It was not at all clear what part of the human anatomy it was that these sisters were draining out the life force through. Looked like a small intestine or a spinal cord, but there wasn't any logical consistency in where they would retrieve it from. (laughs) It, it, It seemed to me like there was a lot of last minute decisions being made on the fly in the movie. The first guy they kill is killed in a manner completely differently than anybody else in the movie. Yes. The tube thing that they drink through seems to come out of nowhere sometimes. Also, the the cops never seem to make a special notice of the weird condition they keep finding right, these bodies right. in. Right, They like, find these bizarre... Oh, we, we, we see men who are turned into giant sacks full of bile and, <laughs> but yeah, and all, all the time. And like uh, the rest of them are all desiccated and skeletal and beach balls. And, that's what I was right, thinking. Right. Beach balls. <laughs> they, they don't put two and two together. They're like, oh, this guy with a knife must be the killer. Indeed. Or these two women could possibly be involved in the murders, but we don't know how. And They just, they, it's like Shallon can testify to this. There are a couple of major characters in this story who are police officers. And, and as somebody who in my day job has covered crime and worked with police officers and sheriff's deputies and covered court cases, these police officers do not remotely behave like the real thing. Oh, they're the worst. <laughs> I mean, I've seen some bad portrayals of police in movies, but this is by far... I mean, these are like the Mr. Magoo's of police work. Oh, definitely. Of course, I guess that makes things a little easier for the uh, succubi, except that they're not really particularly bright themselves. No. I'm going to segue here, I guess, into what has been my biggest complaint, or one of them, with Barker's more recent writing. I was a huge fan of Clive Barker in the 1980s when the Books of Blood came out, and I believe what Stephen King wrote, I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. Right, and I'm still a huge fan and I still think that The Great and Secret Show and Everville are two of the best horror novels ever written. I love Great and Secret Show. I still haven't read Everville and I think you've convinced me to get through it. Oh my gosh. But I recently read Mr. Begone by Clive Barker and I just thought it was awful. And one of the problems with it is his characters. They're all incredibly painfully naive and selfish and the entire plot engine revolves around basically who is stupider <laughs> and that does <laughs> that that just doesn't make for a very satisfying story i uh, would tend to guess that any character in the movie we saw would win that one yeah i mean it it'd be a complete toss up <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to go on for half an hour talking about how stupid each individual character is. Uh, I guess one example that I, I'm going to try and give at least one, but I warn you, if you actually want to see this film, this is a bit of a spoiler. However, I, I gotta say, if you do actually want to see this film, no spoiler in the world will spoil it for you. <laughs> no doubt. Well, at one point, our hero, Tomas comes across his police officer friend that he has made in the modern time, and she has been webbed into a giant sort of spider egg case thing. And he starts 
to cut her out and hears an odd noise and looks over and notices one of the succubi lying on a table nearby. Uh, she has given birth and there's this sort of alien creature ripoff thing that has come out of her stomach. It's sort of like a hand puppet with claws and a cockroach's shell on the back. Right. And he stops trying to free his friend and walks over and basically just stares at Gates this open mouth at this succubi long enough for the other succubi who he knocked out just a few seconds ago but didn't bother to stab to death and make sure she was actually finished off to stand up come up behind him well, actually she didn't stand up she leaped from some boxes that she somehow climbed on without him noticing right. strikes him from behind and bites him with a poisonous bite all i can say is well deserved Dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he... But that, there are moments like that all through this movie. Right. Clive, what happened to you, man? <laughs> well, everybody's got to make some money, you know. That, right. I worked at McDonald's once. It wasn't my best moment, but, I, you know. Now, now I, I do want to say, yes, we're making fun of this movie, but you know, we are aware that uh, Clive Barker has gone through some serious health problems recently. Absolutely wish him all the best. Hopefully some more interesting creative things will be in the future. Right. Now, don't quote me on this, but I think I read an article recently that he was having a creative slump coinciding with his recent health problems. And I really hope that he does get back on his feet because as a huge fan, when I was first delving away from fantasy and sci-fi into horror, he was my first big horror guy. And I still love his work. And I'm about to reread The Great and Secret Show again because I have a couple friends reading it now for it's the first time. It's a great book. I love this book. Fantastic. So hopefully this sort of thing can be logged away with the rawhead Rexes of his film catalog, and we can all just take a quick giggle and move on, because the guy's done so much good stuff. Oh, sure. Now, I have a question for you, because to my knowledge, Barker has only directed three films, which would be the first Hellraiser, and then Nightbreed, and then Lord of Illusions. Okay. I'm curious what you thought of those. I like all those movies. I think Hellraiser is the best of the three. I would agree with that. He really got a chance to play with film, I think, at that point, and really let a lot of his ideas come to the screen visually very well. The Nightbreed movie that was based off of Cabal, which yes. was a short story and then a novel, was a little bit more troubled by what I consider... Actually, that wasn't directed by Barker. That was directed by Cronenberg. Oh, no, 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 no. Cronenberg had a guest part as an actor. Oh, in... that's right. That's no, right. No, he didn't direct That's it. right. Okay, so anyway, I think that that movie maybe got bogged down in the how many creatures can we fit into it kind of thing, which makes sense if you read the book, but still... It it's lacks. a movie, there's a lot of cuts toward the end. It sort of cries out for a director's cut. I'm under the impression that they have not been able to find the original prints. I, I don't know anything about that. I just know that the DVD came out in 2004 and it hasn't had a reprint or anything since. So right. I just ordered it so that I could watch it again, but... No Blu-ray, no director's cut. It's just going to be the basic cut dry. Right. Now, Lord of Illusions, this is an interesting thing for me since we're kind of finishing
finishing this out by talking about Barker's directoral work. I love the story, The Last Illusion, that Lord of Illusions is based on. Unfortunately, Lord of Illusions is nothing like The Last Illusion. <laughs> Which is probably why I can't remember the story, because I think of the movie and right. just there's a disconnect. The, the story is very powerful, and to me, the movie lost its way. Of course, it may be that I was so looking forward to seeing The Last Illusion realized as a movie that when it turned out that that wasn't what this was at all, I was crushed. I mean, perhaps for perhaps for somebody who didn't come with those expectations, it might have been better. I, I don't know. Right. If you're a fan of Scott Bakula at all, <laughs> this is a great... I, I know my mom is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like him in certain roles, and in certain roles it's just obviously Scott Bakula being Scott Bakula, but right. this was a definite stretch for him. I really think that his performance is what made the movie really entertaining for right. me. Right, okay. Because as a story, it's fairly standard body horror right. magic kind of fair, but there's some really cool performances in it that I thought were really fun, and Scott Bakula is this hardened, tattooed Harry Dragor. Yeah, what's the term I'm looking for here? The pulp detective novels. Yeah, kind of novels. a pulp detective novels. Clyde Barker's version of the Sam Spade type yeah. from you know, the so another Sam of the Yes. yes. <laughs> but as a movie, it, you know, I own it, and I watch it from time to time, and so that at least means to me that I like it well enough, but it doesn't stand up very well against some of his other movies right. and the, the movies adapted by his work. We shall look forward to the future with hope. Right. Very very unlike a horror fan, but hey, <laughs> <laughs> why not? Uh, we've gone on for a while, and I think I'm going to call it a wrap, but thank you very much, Shallon, for hey, no helping problem. me out with this, and we'll be back with more stuff. I've if got not plenty next... planned. Okay. <laughs> if not next month, then the month after for certain. So, until then, stay scared. Sweet dreams. Thank you, Mike and Shallon. And by the way, Jan Svankmeyer is probably my favorite animator in all the world. His little Otek, his Faust, and of course Alice uh, have been part of the permanent collection here at the Santoro Cinematheque for quite a few years now. And yes, his films do fuel quite a few of my favorite nightmares, so make sure the kids get a chance to see some of these, maybe by themselves. Main fiction this week is by James Cooper. That's James Cooper Sans Fenimore. James is the author of the novel The Midway, published by Crow's Wing Books in April of 2007. And he's the editor of the anthology Dark Doorways. Uh, that's from the Proofrock Press in 2006. His debut collection of short stories, You Are the Fly, Tales of Redemption and Distress, was published in September 2007 by Humdrumming Books to Favorable Reviews. His second collection, The Beautiful Red, was published by Atomic Fez in March 2010. In 2011, P.S. Publishing produced the novella Terra Damnata to generous reviews. P.S. will also publish another Cooper novella, Strange Fruit, in 2013. Here is his There's Something Wrong with Pappy by James Cooper. 
read by Neil Corbett. I watched from my bedroom window as Pappy stole across the meadow towards the grey house perched on the hill. I'd seen him make the same midnight journey once a week for the last three months and tried to remember when it had first begun. Probably when Mamma had died, strung out on drugs, her bad blood faltering in her veins. Pappy seemed to lose himself for a while back then as though part of him had slipped. And I used to dream of him and Mamma dragging us up to the grey house, Alice screaming her lungs raw, Pappy whispering her favourite lullaby. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. I would wake up with my skull throbbing, my body drenched in sweat, and that damn lullaby playing a loop in my head. When I closed my eyes, Pappy would rear up in front of me, eager to put me to sleep. His face was grey, reminding me of the house on the hill. He looked at me around a mouthful of teeth and smiled. Hush, little baby, he said. Mama's gone. It was the first time I felt truly afraid. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Alice was Pappy's favourite. Always has been, even when Mama was alive. It was difficult to resent her Pappy's affection, though, because Alice was my favourite, too. She was exactly half my age and looked to me like the girls in the fairy tales Pappy would read to us at night, all rosy cheeks and clear blue eyes. I tried not to think about the peril those innocents invariably drew to their door. If Pappy was still grieving for Mama, he rarely let it show, explaining to me that Alice was too young to understand. We had to get back to normal as quickly as possible, he said. But Alice understood grief better than either one of us, and she'd soon renamed her favourite doll Deli after our mother, and dressed her in a coarse outfit she'd cut out and fashioned from one of Mamma's frocks. She'd made Pappy build a small wooden box, roughly the same size as the doll, and insisted she'd be allowed to bury it out on the moor. Pappy was sceptical. It makes me feel sick just thinking about it, he said. I wanted to agree, but sensed how important the ritual could be to Alice. I also thought that, in a strange way, it might help Pappy and me redefine our own grief. She understands far more than we give her credit for, I said. It might help us all move on. 
I could see from Pappy's drawn gaze that he was far from ready to move on, but he trolled his memory for a while and nodded his head. For Alice. When we set foot outside the door, we had two options. To the east was the grey house on the hill. To the west was the moor. Pappy had made it clear long ago that the grey house was off-limits, as was the surrounding meadow and the hill on which it sat. He was also quite firm about which part of the moor we could investigate without inviting trouble. His tone suggested that if the moor didn't get us, then Pappy most assuredly would. I tried to imagine what someone might think if they saw the three of us, wrapped up against the autumn chill, scuffing our way through the ground fog that had stolen its way in from the north. In Pappy's left hand was the box bearing the doll. In his right was Alice's tiny mittened fist. I felt a swell of emotion. It looked so small. I could remember Mamma knitting the mittens last winter, the coloured wool flashing across the needles while Pappy stoked the fire, grumbling about the incessant clacking. Every time Mamma knitted, Pappy would have something to say about it, but he'd eventually cuddle up beside her as she worked and drift off to sleep, her easy rhythm impossible to resist. The heat of the memory startled me, and I found myself fighting back tears, painfully aware that we had lost more than we could begin to comprehend. The intimacy of death was something none of us were prepared for, and I realised that Mamma's ghost still clung to us as we reached out across the broken terrain. I looked at the waves of fog rolling across the heath and felt a customary chill. I glanced down and saw that our legs had been cut off at the ankles. We seemed to be floating, like lost spirits and I closed my eyes and drew in a deep breath, reminding myself that it was still our feet that propelled us through the rippling mist. When the moor closed in on itself like this and hid its beauty from us, I felt claustrophobic as though I were trapped in a sealed box. The rolling landscape was unrecognisable to me, and I turned to Pappy, grateful that he remained sufficiently sensitive to the reconfigured land to negotiate his way across the heath. I'm cold, Alice said. Pappy's pale blue hand touched her cheek and he slowed down. Do you want to stop? Alice stared at the wooden box in Pappy's hand and shook her head. I just wish the moor wasn't so sad today, she said. I turned my head away and concentrated on the blank landscape, feeling empty inside. I dragged the spade through the fog and listened to its dull thump trail behind like a distant echo of my own heartbeat. My face felt wet and raw as though the skin had been peeled away. I wondered what would happen if I cried. We came to a ridge of grey rock that I vaguely recognised, and I saw Alice pointing. A kestrel had come down and was lying dead on a raised crag. It looked stunned. I watched the feathers flutter in the breeze. It'll be gone soon, Pappy said, and I tried not to imagine which predator would end up tearing it apart. We walked on, mindful of the advancing fog, until we arrived at a spot where Alice suddenly stopped and said, here. Pappy nodded. The spot Alice had chosen, and her motivation for having chosen it, went unquestioned. I wanted to give Pappy a hug. You want me to do this? he asked, pointing to the spade. I nodded and plunged the blade into the concealed earth. There was no resistance, and I thought I heard a faint exhalation of bated breath, as though the ground was thankful to be bled of its filth. I worked quickly, feeling stifled inside my winter coat and gloves, and had in no time dug out a grave large enough to accommodate Pappy's box. I stood to one side and Pappy coaxed Alice forward. Here you go, honey. He offered her the box containing the doll and took a step back. 
Alice held the box in her mittened hands and lowered it into the grave. She looked as solemn as the mist engulfing the moor. Do you want to say something? Alice thought for a moment, looked hard at Pappy, and then nodded. He smiled his encouragement. I love you, Mama, she said. She stooped down and threw a handful of soil into the grave. The moment was so beautiful, so private. I wanted to preserve it forever. And in my mind I made a space for the memory, pure and clear and bright. Go on, son, Pappy said. I stepped up to the tiny grave, threw in a handful of earth, and said, Miss you, Mama. Pappy stepped forward, performed the ritual, and said, Me too. We filled in the grave together and walked across the moor, holding hands. I tried not to imagine the doll fighting its way to the surface and clawing its way back to the house. The atmosphere of the next few days settled into something close enough to contentment that we almost failed to recognise the change. Pappy worked diligently in the fields, and Alice and I found a greater focus at school. When we were all at home, we remembered what it was like before, and I had no doubt that this would continue for many years. The difference was we now accepted it. Mamma, thank the good Lord, was going nowhere. We had all those bright spaces in our head where she'd taken it upon herself to rest. It wasn't perfect, of course. Nothing ever is. After the burial of the doll, Alice found a new project that left both Pappy and I cold, and I had to work hard to summon any kind of enthusiasm for it at all. She had taken to staring out of her bedroom window at the grey house across the moor, and spent every evening crafting an exact replica of it out of cardboard, papier-mâché and PVA glue. It looked hideous, even more appalling than its counterpart, which bestrode the hill above the meadow like an architectural eyesore. Alice had worked meticulously to imitate the features and adjust the scale, but had managed only to create a reproduction that looked like a warped, deviated twin of the grey house on the hill. The angle of the roof was all wrong. The windows lurched in their painted frames. The door cringed under the weight of the papier-mâché and the glue. You could tell what it was supposed to be easily enough, but I succumbed to a distilled sense of unreality whenever I was forced to look at it for too long. Pappy was openly horrified. He called the thing a monstrosity and refused to concede how disciplined and determined Alice had been during its creation. When I pointed out that this was just a new way of deflecting her new reality, he became angry and slammed down the plate he was cleaning. There are other ways, he said, and left the room. I heard him enter his bedroom and vaguely wondered how lonely he must feel in there. Despite Pappy's objection, Alice remained undeterred. She continued working on the grey house, but kept it locked in her room, occasionally inviting me in to review her progress. For all this ugliness, there was no denying how detailed the house was. She had captured the austerity of it beautifully, and I felt a low, unmistakable pounding in my head as it took shape. Pappy's in the grey house, she said. See? I looked closer and realised she had painted a grey face at one of the upstairs windows with pale unflinching eyes. The pounding in my head grew worse. The next few nights were unusually quiet. Pappy worked till late in the fields and Alice spent all her time in her room, teasing out details in the model of the grey house. When Pappy came home he was invariably tired and I placed his tea before him with a kind of subdued deference attuned to the delicacy of his moods. He said little apart from grunting for condiments and occasionally muttering his thanks. 
His face was dark with tilled soil and sweat. One night after tea, I came downstairs to find him hunched over his roll-top desk, writing by the light of the fire. It was something he did poorly and was disinclined to do so without duress. I left him to it and returned forty minutes later to find him fast asleep in his armchair, snoring. As I watched, the flames exaggerated the contours of his face. Unable to stop myself, I approached Pappy's desk and stooped to see what he'd been scribbling in his ledger. I knew it was wrong, knew Pappy would be furious if he found out, but I felt powerless to prevent it. The urge to discover what had driven him to write, of all things, was simply too great. I reached for the ledger and turned to the page in which Pappy had set his pen. The marks reminded me of the first meaningless scribbles Alice had made when she had been no more than three years old. I flicked through the book, thinking it a mistake, but the ledger was filled with page after page of patiently transcribed but utterly illegible script. I looked at Pappy and felt a mild chill as his features swam in the firelight. Was it an elaborate code or merely gibberish scribbled down in the dying embers of the night? I wanted to believe that Pappy understood implicitly every symbol he'd scratched into the page. There seemed to be some kind of pattern to it at the very least. But the more I looked at it, the less relevant it became, and I felt a sudden urge to shake him awake, to demand an explanation, to stop the firelight transforming his face. I sat on my bed and peered through the curtains, watching Pappy walk towards the house on the hill. I looked at the clock. Luminous red lines arranged themselves into numbers. O-O-3-1. The room felt much colder than I remembered, and I momentarily wondered if our arrangement had changed. Perhaps I was watching Pappy return home, after having abandoned me inside the grey house. I felt my skin crawl at the idea, and bound myself in the bedsheets, which still trailed a little of my warmth. Such thoughts could easily derail a person. I felt suddenly invulnerable and realised that, with Pappy striding across the moonlit meadow, Alice and I were utterly alone. I closed my eyes and wondered why he would do such a thing. Another glance out of the window and my stomach lurched. Pappy was approaching the front door. The grey house suddenly looked like Alice's twisted incarnation of it. The proportions all wrong. The tiles aslant. The features pasted on with glue. I wanted to scream, but my mouth felt dry. I realised there was nothing I could do. Pappy was reaching for the door. He had something in his hand, something dark and knotted and wrong. The door opened and he stepped inside. I thought I saw movement at one of the upstairs windows. A grey face that peered across at me, then hastily withdrew. When I looked back at the front door, it had been closed. It occurred to me that I might never see Pappy again. I felt a piercing sense of dislocation and cried out. The roaring in my skull resumed. When I went down for breakfast the following morning, Pappy was seated at the kitchen table eating eggs. He looked tired and I wondered if he'd managed to get any sleep. I smiled and he smiled back, though without any real enthusiasm. Where's Alice? I asked, helping myself to what was left in the pan. Pappy grunted. Still working on that damn house. I watched him eat and felt a distance between us that I couldn't quite define. She had any breakfast? Just fruit. Did you make her any eggs? He looked at me. She didn't want no eggs, he said. Just fruit. He wiped his bread across the rim of the plate and folded it into his mouth. Are you all right, Pappy? I asked. And for a moment there was a loaded silence. 
This would have been the perfect time to ask him about his midnight trip to the Grey House, but I could feel the consequences hanging in the air. Pappy looked at me and his eyes softened. I'm tired, son. That's all. He reached for my hand. It'll pass. He rinsed his plate in the sink and left the house. I could hear his heavy work boots pounding the frost from the land. Later that evening, towards the end of his shift, Pappy burst into the kitchen where I sat peeling potatoes and stared at me, as though wondering whether he were doing the right thing. His eyes were bright and managed to look both excited and appalled. "'Where's your sister?' he asked. "'At Millie's house,' I said. "'Remember?' If he did, it seemed immediately irrelevant, and I tried to imagine what could eliminate Alice from his thoughts so quickly. "'Get your coat,' he said, "'and find an old blanket.' I watched him run to the dresser and retrieve his pistol from the small safe inside the cabinet. As he held it to the light and loaded it, I felt something in my head begin to throb. "'Hurry!' I pulled on my coat, which was still hanging over one of the kitchen chairs, and sprinted up to the spare room to find a blanket. I found one in Mamma's old ottoman that looked ragged and smelled of mildew. Whatever Pappy wanted it for, I figured it would just have to do. I returned to the kitchen and chased after Pappy, who was already striding through the door. The pistol stock bulged beneath his sweater where he'd wedged it inside the waistband of his jeans. I followed in silence, trying hard not to feel afraid. As we walked across the moor, I regretted not having taken the time to bring a flashlight. The horizon was heavy with rain and the light was fading fast. The wind bit into my cheeks as I watched the heath grow dark. I trailed out of Pappy, looking out for whatever had animated him, and eventually saw it in the mottled grass up ahead. A fox, its right leg caught in the jaws of a steel trap, gnawing away at its paw. You see that, Pappy said. You see how desperate it is to make the pain go away. I nodded and looked up to see Pappy's sad round eyes in the dusk. I returned my gaze to the fox and felt a sickening rush of despair. I wanted to run to it and set it free, but knew it would never let me close enough to spring the trap. It gazed at us and continued to bite through the blooded pulp of its paw. There was an unearthly silence, as though the creature had passed beyond pain, into a state that I would never understand. Sometimes, Pappy said, seemingly from a great distance, you do whatever it takes to escape. We stood back and watched the fox complete his grisly struggle for freedom. It pulled its hobbled leg from the trap and made to drag itself away, but the damage was too great and it collapsed onto the heath, its tongue lolling out and dark blood pooling around the root of its limb. I almost moved to help it up, but Pappy checked me with a hand on my shoulder and shook his head. It's too dangerous, he said. But it needs help. Pappy looked at me and smiled. Yes, he said. It does. He removed the pistol from his jeans pulled back the trigger, and fired two rounds into the fox's head. Each recoil made me drum and reverberated across the darkening moor. The fox lay unmoving in the grass. I wanted to cry but managed to hold it in. Pappy took me by the hand and silently led me away. When I saw Alice's version of the grey house the following day, I was staggered, not so much by the model and the extravagant detail she'd painted in, but by the density of her imagination. She'd pasted the house onto a large rectangular board and begun broadening the scope of the reproduction to accommodate the surrounding meadow and the sombre moorland beyond. I chose not to remind her that the real grey house was perched on a hill. It seemed churlish. I gazed at the replica house and couldn't help thinking that the damned thing looked like it had been dipped in ash. It was the colour of industrial waste and captured perfectly the cold, uninviting stare of the original. 
I looked through Alice's bedroom window and realised that the grey house was brooding above us, an unwavering template from which my sister had been able to work. She'd done a good job, too. The ease with which she'd adapted to the medium was quite remarkable. I returned my attention to the model and glanced at the upstairs window, expecting to see a pale, indistinct face scowling back. I frowned. Hey, what happened to the face? I asked. It was right here. Alice looked up from mixing another palette of acrylics and smiled. Pappy came back, she said, and carried on mindlessly stirring the paint. My head started to ache faintly behind my right eye, as though my optic nerve was being squeezed in a vice. I squinted my eyes shut and opened them again, hoping the pain would go away. I shook my head and tried to focus on Alice's work. Something gleamed on the papier-mâché board, and I leaned in for a closer look. It was on the fringes of the composition, on the painted ridges that represented the moor. I felt something tighten inside my skull. Alice had placed a toy fox on its side in one of the papier-mâché grooves. She had cut off its right front paw. She had then painted blood on what remained of its leg and splashed a trail of red droplets across the board. "'What's this?' I said, pointing. "'What you and Pappy did,' she said. I shook my head, confused. "'We didn't do this, Alice. We tried to save it.' "'It doesn't matter,' she said. "'Now the fox can go in the grey house.' And she picked it up and mimed marching it up to the front door. I stopped her hand, horrified. How in heaven's name did Alice know what Puppy and I had done to the fox? My head was spinning with the lunacy of it, and yet I could see the proof of it in Alice's hand. I drew the fox from her palm, my fingers slick with sweat, and reached for the first duplicity that came to mind. The house is no place for a fox, I said. Let's leave it on the moor. Its family might find it and take it home. Okay? I put the fox back on the papier-mâché board and felt sick. There was no family, no home. The creature was exactly where Pappy and I had left it, buried up to its neck in grass with his body falling apart for the crows. That night I dreamed of Delhi, the doll we had buried on the moor. She had clawed her way out of the wooden box into which she had been squeezed and had burrowed her way to the surface. Her button eyes were shiny in the moonlight. Her mouth was full of mud. The stuffing from her fingers had worked loose as she'd scratched at the ground to be free. I could feel my body thrashing in the bed, but the dream had me by the throat. It had no intention of letting me go. I watched the doll lollop across the moonlit heath, moving exactly as she had under Alice's influence, her legs dragging awkwardly along the ground. I knew it was impossible, but she was wearing Pappy's work boots and was clomping across the frost towards our house. When it appeared on the horizon, the perspective of the dream changed and I realised I was looking out through the four stitching holes of Delly's round button eyes. A light was on in one of the bedrooms and a face was pressed up against the glass. I knew instinctively that I was staring at my own terrified image as I watched the doll drive relentlessly towards the front door. Pappy's work boots crunching over the frozen ground. I watched myself scream through Delly's eyes as the house grew closer, could see the pale insignificance of my face. As Delly reached for the latch on the door, I screamed myself awake into darkness. The bed was drenched in perspiration, the sheets a tangled mess on the floor. I pulled myself up to the window sill and pressed my forehead against the condensation on the glass. I felt my blood run cold. I could see the faint imprint of Pappy's work boots in the frost, 
heading towards the darkness of the moor. The following morning I awoke at the crack of dawn. Pappy was still asleep in his room. I went into the kitchen, pulled on my coat and boots, and slipped out onto the heath. There was a thin mist rolling across the landscape, but the sun had already begun to burn it away. I looked to the east and saw the grey house still bearing the night's shadow. I could sense it watching me as I dug my hands into my pockets and dipped my head to shield my eyes from the rising sun. The ground was crisp, as it had been for most of the month, and remnants of my dream floated just out of reach, inducing a chill that carried all the way to my bones. I could feel my nose running, while the cold snagged my eyes and made me cry. I walked doggedly for another ten minutes, remembering the last time I'd made this journey. I pictured Pappy with the box, and Alice with her tiny mittened hands. Eventually I came to the knoll on which the box had been buried, and the mist parted to let me see what I already knew. I stopped and watched the ghosts of my dead breath disperse against the morning sun. A small mound of recently turned earth formed a pyramid a few feet from where Puppy had violated the grave. I walked towards the knoll and considered how alarmed I would be if, after doing all this, Delhi's box had not been exhumed. I leaned in and held my breath. The grave was empty. Pappy had reclaimed Mamma from the earth. At 0053, I heard Pappy leave his bedroom and creep downstairs, his breathing ragged. There was a moment or two of silence as he pulled on his boots, and then a metallic snick as he lifted the latch on the door. I peered from my bedroom window and saw a hunched figure walking towards the grey house, Mamma's box tucked under his arm. I rushed downstairs, making more noise than I had intended, and pulled Pappy's flashlight from a hook on the wall. What's going on? I looked up and saw Alice standing halfway down the stairs, peering at me through the spindles and rubbing her eyes. Where's Pappy? Go back to bed, I said softly. Pappy's asleep. No, he ain't. I just looked in his room. He ain't even there. I cursed under my breath and pocketed the torch. He went for a walk, okay? He couldn't sleep. Alice looked unconvinced. On the moor? He'll be back soon, I said. We both will. Alice looked horrified. I ain't been left in the dark, she said, and ran to put on her clothes. I shook my head around a string of curses and waited for Alice to reappear. When she came marching down the stairs, she had on her red Wellington boots and the blue woolen hat with the ducks on it that Mamma had knitted her last year. You have to be real quiet, Alice, okay? It's a secret. Alice drew a pretend zip across her sweet little mouth, and I smiled. Good girl. By the time we left the kitchen and closed the door, Pappy was halfway across the meadow, striding purposefully towards the grey house. I took Alice by the hand, switched on Pappy's flashlight, and set off after him. When she realised where we were headed, she pulled back and frowned. We can't go up there, she said. Pappy said so. I pointed to the tiny speck moving through the dark grass and squeezed her hand. We don't have any choice. She hesitated a moment and then allowed herself to be pulled along as we followed in Pappy's wake. I watched him closely to see if he'd look over his shoulder or turn back, but it seemed that his course was set. I could see his hair bellowing in the breeze. His work boots looked large and black. I pictured Delly wearing them in my dream, and I wondered if she was still trapped in Pappy's box. I paused and corrected myself. Pappy hadn't rescued the doll. He'd rescued Mamma. Wasn't that why his mind had slipped? why the puppy we knew had been 
broken in two. I could see the back of the box lodged under his arm, and he carried it with a kind of reverence that he usually reserved for Alice when he bore her up to bed. I wanted to scream out at him, to prevent him from taking another step, but I sensed that a part of my own personality had slipped too, and I knew implicitly that it was a darker design than Pappy's that was drawing us towards the house. I led Alice across the meadow and drew in several deep breaths. The air seemed heavier here, and I could feel the charged presence of the grey stone looming above me on the hill. I glanced up just in time to see Pappy disappear inside the house. Run, Alice, I said, and we both picked up the pace, me all but dragging Alice along. To her credit, she never complained once. I think she too must have sensed the volatile pressure in the air. The hill was tougher to negotiate, but there was a narrow path cut into its side, and we reached the grey house panting like dogs, barely even aware that we'd arrived. Feels cold, Alice said, squeezing my hand. Do we have to go inside? It was a question I'd been asking myself as we crossed the meadow, scrabbling around for any excuse to retreat. Had I not just seen Pappy be accepted into the house by whatever dwelt inside, I would have gladly turned on my heel and fled. Pappy needs us, I said, and reached for the handle of the door. Alice resisted for a moment and then reached out and slowly held Isa to jar. We never even made it across the threshold. We didn't need to. Everything it wanted us to see was right there. Two gas lamps set into sconces on the wall illuminated a large entrance hall, divided by twin Corinthian columns. Between these I could see a freestanding staircase that led to the upper story of the house, gold balustrades leading the way. Suspended from a beam at the top of the stairs hung two bodies, swinging freely, their heads yanked sideways by the rope. One was a boy wearing the same clothes as me. The other was a startled-looking girl, one red Wellington boot had fallen from her foot and lay midway down the carpeted stairs. On her head she wore a handmade woolen hat. Yellow ducks paraded around the trim. I stared hard at the dead girl and was unable to stop myself crying out. The face caught in the noose around which the yellow ducks were dancing was Alice's, or something like Alice's, for the nose was slightly askew and the eyes were unevenly arranged in the head. The house had also rendered the complexion all wrong, and had made the hanging Alice grey and old. I turned my head away and looked down at the little girl clutching my hand, praying to God that her attention had been focused elsewhere. It had. I followed Alice's eyeline and saw Pappy kneeling before a tall man. He was staring into the grey, washed-out features of his own face. The man was identical to Pappy in every respect, his expression shifting across the spectrum of Pappy's moods, eager to settle on the image that reminded us of him most. Whatever it was looking for, it failed to achieve. As I watched it reconfigure itself, the grey features kept slipping, so that it looked like an animation gone bad. I tried to remember what it reminded me of, but could only conjure up an unreliable picture of Alice's model and the blurry face she'd painted in one of the upstairs windows of the house. I looked again, realising that Pappy's grey imitation had not yet realised we were there. Was it because we'd failed to set foot in the house? Could it be that simple, that logical? I stared at Pappy, furious that he'd been driven to his knees by his own twisted reflection, and braced myself to yank him from the room. It was then that I saw the look of pained determination on Pappy's face. There was sweat trickling down his cheeks. He had in his hand the box he'd retrieved from the grave, the one with Mamma resting inside, and he was battling some deep, singular impulse not to deliver it to his twin. Pappy, I yelled, it's not Mamma, let it go. 
He glanced over his shoulder, and the look of horror and disgust reflected in his own eyes told me that everything I thought I needed to know. "'Get her out of here!' he screamed. "'Please, Henry, keep her safe, please!' "'Pappy!' Alice shouted. "'Let go!' He shook his head and held firmly to the box in his hands. The grey Pappy looked at us and smiled. I felt his shifting gaze expand, trying to work its way beneath my skin. "'The house!' Pappy said. "'You have to destroy the house!' I wanted to scream at him, to wake up, to stop articulating his nightmares, to rearrange the order of his dreams, but his eyes were so bright that I saw in them an acceptance of what this was, an acceptance of what it would always be, our family falling apart. Pappy reached out with one hand, his eyes still trained on mine, whispered Alice's name and slammed the door. I wanted to weep, but it seemed like a betrayal. Pappy wasn't dead, he just needed help getting out. I felt a tug on my arm and looked down to see Alice trying hard not to cry. Pappy's in the grey house, she said. I know, sweetheart. It's complicated. He needs to make the bad part go away. She shook her head. Not this grey house, she said, looking forlorn. My grey house. I stared at her and wondered if my stupidity had cost Pappy his life. Yes, I said, of course. And we took off down the hill towards the moor. I opened the door and rushed inside, Pappy's final instruction to me ringing in my ears. Where is it, I said, gasping for breath. Alice looked scared. Upstairs. I sped towards Alice's room and came down carrying the papier-mâché board. The model of the grey house looked dark and deserted, but I knew that this would never be the case. Fetch Pappy's axe, I said. Alice disappeared and came back carrying the hatchet Pappy used to chop firewood in the cellar downstairs. We have no choice, Alice, Okay. She nodded. When I break it up, I need you to throw the pieces in the stove. Can you do that, honey? Another nod, though this time I could see a thin film of tears in her eyes. I brought the hatchet down and the blade whistled as it smashed through the roof. I started to feel a dull ache in my arm each time my shadow fell over the board, but within minutes the grey house had been reduced to dust. I helped Alice sweep up the last fragments and we watched the model burn through the grate. Now what? Alice said. We wait. I moved over to the kitchen table and bent down to give her a hug. I don't like waiting, she said. We continued hugging each other and looked through the kitchen window at the grey house. Pappy won't leave us, will he? she asked. Of course not, I said. Why would you say such a thing? She fell silent and I felt angry at myself for failing to find the right words. If the house gets him, she began. I looked at her and tried to remain calm. It won't, I said. Pappy won't let it. Through the window I saw movement at the top of the hill and my heart started beating a little faster. It was a figure in a dark coat just like Pappy's, moving slowly, almost reluctantly towards the moor. I shifted in my seat and returned my gaze to Alice. Can I sit with you, she asked. Of course. I pulled back the chair and allowed her to sit on my knee. When I glanced from the window again, the figure was gone, and I pictured Pappy shuffling across the meadow, his arms embracing the box. "'I miss Mamma,' Alice said. "'I miss her face. I don't even remember it so good.' "'It'll come back,' I said. I listened to the wind blowing across the heath, and I thought I heard the sound of Pappy's work boots trampling the frozen grass. "'Will you look after me?' Alice said. "'When Pappy gets old?' I smiled and ruffled her hair. You'll be old too, I said. We all will. 
I heard the gate at the bottom of the path clunk shut and felt the thunder of Pappy's boots through the floor. Pappy! Alice squealed, jumping from my knee. I smiled, but something about the way it slipped from my face felt wrong. It reminded me too much of Pappy's twin. There was a gentle knock at the door. Let him in! Let him in! Alice screamed. I quickly did as I was bid, but my greeting was cold. As Alice hugged her father, I stared hard at the man's face, desperately wanting to explain away the grey sheen in no doubt which Pappy had come back. Thank you for that, James. James Cooper lives in Nottinghamshire, England, with his wife and son. In addition to his novel, he has sold over 40 short stories to small press magazines and anthologies. These include Cemetery Dance, Black Static, Postscripts, Hub, All Hallows, Midnight Street, Not One of Us, Cold Flesh, and the list goes on and on. He's a prolific writer. And thank you, James We'd love to get some more from you. The narrator for There's Something Wrong with Peppy was Neil D. Corbett. Neil is a technical artist at Rockstar Games in Leeds who is currently working on the next game in the Grand Theft Auto series. By the way, he wanted me to say that his name appears to be in the opening credits of Grand Theft Auto Four, but that's actually someone with a slightly different spelling. Neil likes making things, he likes science, and occasional karaoke. He recently became engaged and is currently trying to decide with his fiancée what nerdy thing the cake should look like. Well, as you probably gathered, that's it. Oh, uh, one last little thing. I try not to bring up my own writing here, but I recently received a note from a Facebook friend. I've never met her. She lives in Texas. But I wanted to share her thought with you because, in the first place, she says nice things about my book, Drink for the Thirst to Come, now available on Kindle from Silver Thought Press, and because she makes an interesting point about dark fiction and how it has its own light in dark corners. Rose is her name. She's in Texas, as I said. And, well, let me read this to you. Hello, Lawrence, she says. I am undergoing chemo and got drink for the thirst to come to read while I was in the clinic. Pretty soon, one of my neighbors wanted to know what I was reading, and I began to read out loud to them. One of the gents is blind, and he really appreciates the descriptions in the stories. I read Drink for the Thirst to Come, the story, Root Soup, Winter Soup, and In a Dainty Place to my little group, and they seemed to quite enjoy being able to sit back, close their eyes, and be read to while undergoing horrific treatment. My chemo schedule has been reduced, so I haven't been there as much. So one gentleman bought himself a copy so he could finish the stories. I ran into him today, and he told me that he's having a difficult time getting through the stories because he needs my Chicago voice to make sense of it. It made me laugh. I told him I'd come and read it to him before I left. 
But it did make me realize that I have a certain amount of comfort with your words and phrases. That is definitely regional, so perhaps that comes through for those older Texans, some of whom never, ever read this genre and never thought they would enjoy these types of stories. It was an interesting take, and I thought I'd share it with you. Have a wonderful week. Rose. Oh, thank you, Rose, uh, for taking time to send that. I love hearing from readers. In particular, I love hearing how my work is being read. I, I do write to be read aloud. Whenever I can, I encourage people who buy my books or stories to find a comfortable place, settle down, and read aloud to yourself, to a friend, but get the words off the page and into the air as sound. Well, you know that, don't you? Children of the night... Well, that's it. I hope you've had a grand time this evening. Hope the tales have left you with some residual terror to chill your walk home. Won't be too hard. It's late. It's dark. Stick to the side streets, though, where the lamps flicker and sometimes go out completely, and that'll, that'll keep it all chilled. If you see shadows ahead, a dark pall, they're probably nothing, nothing. Nothing at all. Then you'll be home, and then you'll be in bed, where everything is as it always is, most of the time. So, sleep, sleep tight, and have pleasant dreams. Hmm? you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 